brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. week's edition of Soft Rep Radio with your host, Big Phil Campion from across the pond. I'm actually a bit further than across the pond. I'm in Spain this week again. Okay, I'm back to the UK next week. But now I'm in Marbella and you'll find out a little bit why further on through this show. Anyway, so let's let's start off by saying we're on time and we're on target with Soft Rep Radio. Okay, cool. Let's crack on with what we're going to talk about this week. Well, we're going to talk about the Remembrance Rumble. We're also going to talk about some celebrity security, and we're going to talk about plane disturbances. All topical, all subjects of stuff that's going on right now and around us. So let's kick things right off then with the Remembrance Rumble. Okay, for those of you who don't know then, the Remembrance Rumble is a boxing match. And it's not just any boxing match. It's UK Special Forces versus US Special Forces, and it happens every year. Okay, so this has been going now for four years. The concept was drawn up by myself and with the help of Brandon Webb and has been going, like I say now, for the last four years. Why did we do it? Well, let's have a little bit of a history lesson behind the Remembrance Rumble, shall we? I've always liked boxing. I've always liked combat sports, full stop, but I've never done anyway. Okay, I left the regiment, I'd never boxed in the army, and I was rolling through a career, always wanting to have a boxing match, but never actually quite making it into the ring. So I decided I was going to do something about it. I was going to train, and I was going to train to fight. And it was very important to me. It was something I wanted to do. You all too often hear people going, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd had a look at that. This was something I didn't want to, when I got into my later years, turn around and go, I wish I'd had my boxing match. Because it's one of those things, like special forces selection, you can't do anything about in your 60s and 70s, or even your 50s like I am now. All right, so I started training at a boxing club. In fact, I first started training out in Israel. And I was training with a club, a Palestinian club, and we used to smuggle fighters across the border from Palestine so they could fight Israelis and then vice versa. And there was no malice in it. It was done for sport. It was done because they loved the sport. And uh, I got quite involved in the scene over there, in the boxing scene. And we had some great, some great nights over there. But it got me wondering, what would it have been like for me if I'd have decided to fight? So I started training. Now, let me just get this right from the very start. You don't play at boxing. You do, it's not a sport, you play, all right? So get that right out of your head. So to just jump in a ring and start boxing with someone at any age, really, would be stupid, let alone someone who'd boxed before. So I started training, and as I got a bit used to it and learned how to hold my hands and move my feet a little bit, I decided I'd branch out and try and find a fight. Now, here comes the hard bit. I'm an ex-SAS soldier. 
Yeah, there's a lot of people queuing up to fight me. I can tell you that now, all right? So if they were wanting to fight me, it would usually mean that it had two or three professional fights at least, had been Golden Gloves winners or the equivalent of, and had had umpteen amateur fights and had been boxing since I was a kid or a child. It was very, very difficult for me to find a match. And then a friend of mine, Rob Paxman from G Squadron 22 SAS, like myself, similar, Special Forces, said, I'll fight you, Phil. He's a big old lad, similar sort of size and weight. And so we said, right, we'll fight. Now, there has to be a point to fighting. There's no, I've always said, you don't just have a fight. There needs to be a point to fighting. So we wanted our point to be for charity, for veterans' charities, and to raise money and awareness, which is very important, okay, awareness. Now, we've got a lot of hype around myself and Rob's fight. He goaded me, and I goaded him, and he called me out, and I called him out, and it went down on Facebook like a storm. It was all really good fun. And like I say, we had the fight. I did batter him. I beat Rob. He'll be the first to admit I got the better of him. He came out swinging, but I managed to I managed to pin him in the corner eventually. And uh, yeah, I'll give him quite a licking in the end. But it was a good fight, and we left it at that. Well, it wasn't enough for me. I was like, no, 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 really enjoyed this. And the other thing that was blatantly obvious was it did a lot of good. I fought for a charity called Care After Combat, which helps guys who are who are struggling and find themselves on the wrong side of the law. Uh, Rob fought for a mind charity for people who were struggling with the with, with, with the transition into civilian life and had a few mental health problems. And we realised that we did raise a lot of awareness and we did raise quite a few 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 pounds as well. So what I set out to do was actually working. Now the guy that helped me promote that fight said to me, "Phil, how could you make that bigger?" How could you make that into something that was worthwhile having? So I said to myself, well, let's have a think. Let's have a look at it. And then it dawned on me. Why don't I put a team together of ex-special forces and dive across the pond to our good old favourite friends, the Americans, and see if I could find a, a team of similar, of similar like-minded people who wanted to have a tear up with us for charity. And I realised, of course, that you in the States... Your veteran aftercare is probably better. Well, it is better than what we have in the UK. And I figured that because we do everything together, you know, we, we, we fight together, we feed together, we fly together, we do everything together. You know, we're like best of buddies. And I thought, well, why don't we look after our vets together as well? So I was very keen to learn about the stuff that you do. And not only keen to learn about it, but I was keen to promote your stuff over here in the UK and see if we could bring ourselves up in line with what you're doing over there for your veterans. So I spoke to Brandon. You all know Brandon Webb. And we got the first we got the first rumble up and going. We decided, you know, Brandon got some great friends. We had some great people involved. Rab was, Rab was there. He came over. No Rad, no Rumble. I always say that to this day. And Rad came over and helped. And we put ourselves together a fight card. And not only did we put a fight card together, we got one of the most prestigious venues in the UK for boxing. It's a boxing venue where every fighter who's worth his shots has had a fight. And it's called the York Hall. Now, it's not huge, but it's been there for years. Everybody's fought there. And if you speak to most boxers... Or anybody who's worth his salts in boxing, he'll say to you, if you only ever have one fight, have it in the York Hall. And it's true. It is an absolute delight of a venue. It's an old Victorian-type building. Uh, and as you go in through the big double doors, there's seating all the way around. And then there's a balcony that goes all the way around. And the ring sits right in the middle. And you come down from a stage at the end. 
Uh, it really is. It lends itself to fighting so well. And once you're in there, and I think we had about 1,500 people in there. Once you're in there, it's the noisiest, horriblest, meanest venue there is. It's hot under the lights. It's, it's just everything you'd want for a nice fight night. So... We had this venue. We had a we had a really great night. We raised some good money. Brandon took's got some good footage, I think. And if you look back through the soft rep files, you'll find some of the footage from the from the first rumble there. The fights were good. We had some great fights, and it laid the foundations for what has now become a yearly event. And now, the year after, we put it on again in the York Hall. And last year, we held it in Brighton. We called it the. The, the bust up on the beach, because Brighton here in the UK is by the beach. It's a beach resort. It's a famous place. And we held it in the Hilton, uh, the same Hilton that was blown up by the IRA years ago uh, in their attempt to disrupt politics and get at Margaret Thatcher. Of course, they failed, but they did manage to blow the building up, but it didn't, no great shakes, and it's still there today as his testament to the fact that we all had a fight in there. So... It was good. And this year, we're moving up north. Now, we've, we've been felt fairly well supported again this year, but I just can't help thinking to myself, this is something I need to bring over to America. This is something I want you people in the US to see. I want you to see the mentality of the man that wants to fight. I want you people to, to be in the same room as me when I have a tear-up, to witness, to witness my mindset, to witness other soldiers' mindsets, to witness your own soldiers' mindsets when they come up against someone, you know, and they have a common purpose, all right? We're all there. We're all there raising money for our, for our veterans and raising awareness. And having a purpose for your fight, like I said before, is important. But I want, I'd love to bring it to the States. I'd love to take it to, say, Madison Square Garden or there's various other venues up and down the United States that would love to see this. So maybe we could tour the States with the Remembrance Rumble. It would be absolutely superb. But ultimately, I would really like to bring it to the States. And I'd like to take my fighters out there. Um, all my fighters have been fighting in the UK. And of course, it would be good to see to see how, how, how you do things over there and how your audience reacts to us. When we throw the Rumble over here, we're very patriotic. It's, it's Union Jacks everywhere. It's, you know, we play the national anthems. My walking always has some sort of military connotation. I've had bagpipers, I've had drummers. We get historical on you every time. So it would be interesting. It would be great fun to come over to the States and put on a show. Now, I don't want to put on, like I say, this, it is important. It is a show. It's not, it's not your normal, like I say, charity boxing evening. We put it on like a professional show. We have all the bells and whistles. We have everything. We have opera singers. We have, we have drummers. We have, all sorts going on. And we try and make it as big a show as we can. So, so like I say, we reach the most people with the awareness and all that sort of stuff. So that's where we're at. This year's Remembrance Rumble It's going down in less than 18 days. And I should be pulling my shorts on, sticking my gloves on, wrapping my hands up, and I should be tearing it up with, I think, Seth Knox this year. I fought Seth last year. Great guy. And we're going to get on for charity and to raise awareness. So if you can, I'm going, to give you a, I'm going to give you some streaming information. You will be able to watch the Rumble this year. You will be able to stream it. And hopefully next year, if you put enough pressure on Brandon, let's see if we can, let's see if we can do something in the States this year. I'm going, to, I'm going to try and get it over there. I'm going to speak to Brandon myself and say, yeah, we want to bring it over to the States. 
because I think it would be fun and I think you guys would enjoy it. And certainly the guys that I met at the Crate Club Academy, they'd love to see a boxing match. They had a great night. And again, it's that mentality of the Special Forces soldier. It's that mentality that takes you into battle. It's special stuff. It's great stuff to see. And like I say, yeah, let's see if we can get something on next year for you guys to come and appreciate and watch because that would be, that'd be special. But for now, this year, like I say, I'll give you some streaming details. Um, if you look at my social media, at Big Phil Campion, on Twitter, on Facebook, and Instagram, and if you have a look there, you'll see the fight some way, shape, or form, or at least the live feed too. So that's enough. That's enough on the Remembers Rumble update. Like I say, I'm training very hard at the moment. I'm in Spain training this year at a very famous gym called MTK. Last year, I trained at the Peacock in London, which is just as famous. Fighters such as... Uh, your Floyd Mayweather's been the, the peacock. And Tyson Fury fights out of the MTK. So some big names I'm rubbing shoulders with and hopefully doing some big stuff. Right, okay, where are we? We were going to talk about celebrity security, which is something I didn't do a massive amount of, but it's something I do know a fair amount about. Celebrity bodyguarding. Let's call it bodyguarding. Let's have a, let's have a chat about celebrity bodyguarding. I call it hobby guarding, because I would only ever do it now if it was a band I wanted to actually go and see. That sounds a little bit funny and quirky, but that's the way it is with me. Let's start with the differences in between this and a normal security detail. Okay, security detail, how I know it would predominantly be something in Kabul or Baghdad or Gaza or West Africa, but there's a genuine... Horrible, honking, disgusting threat against you, okay? And you will stay looking after an ambassador or, you know, somebody of business who needed to get from A to B. But somebody, and that's the key word, who needed you, who actually needed you to be there, okay? Now, that's not true of all celebrities. There is a threat on some celebrities, depending on who they are. But like I say, I have had scenarios where I've just been almost a handbag carrier, uh, so that can be, that can be one of the most distinguishing factors is that they don't actually need you there and you are more of a fashion prop than you are doing a job of security. So that's the most striking difference. Then you've got to look at assets and stuff like that. So if you're doing a government type job, you can expect you're going to get lots of assets. You're going to be able to control the show. All right, you're going to be calling the shots and all that sort of stuff. You're going to be going to whoever the principal is and saying, boss, it's not safe to go that way. We need to go this way. We can't go in that car, we've got to take this car. We can't go on that plane, we've got to take that plane. We need this helicopter, we don't need that, we can't have this. You get the picture, all right? We're doing stuff properly. We're doing stuff as laid out by the book. We're doing it as we've been taught. We'll probably have an advance party. We'll probably have a decent-sized team. We'll have, a, we'll have a, a properly trained driver. We'll have weapons. We'll have proper weapons, all right? So we'll have all the bells and whistles for a government-type task. And rightly so. You know, you've got to go into hostile areas. You've got to do some proper stuff. And we're going to talk, I'm going to put a completely different show on hostile area stuff at a later date. But um, we're now dealing with celebrity stuff where perhaps you might not get the right amount of men. You definitely, definitely, in most countries in Europe, ain't going to be armed. The threat is going to be different. Now, I remember doing a guy years ago called Dizzy Rascal, and the biggest threat to him was being mobbed by women. It really was, and they used to try and pull his clothes off and all sorts of stuff. In fact, he got that bad once. They were pulling at his T-shirt, so much so it was constricting the blood flow into his, into his head, and he nearly passed out, and I had to get a J-knife and cut his T-shirt off and let them have it, and then get him out of the way. So it's a totally different animal. The other thing is, you're going to be exposed to other types of stuff. So they might say, well, Phil, 
I haven't got this car. I haven't got that car. We need to do it this way. We need to do it that way. I want you to do this. I want to do that. I am only a service provider. So I am going to give them what they want. And I have to fit in with their schedules, their timings, and what they want to do. And most A-type celebrities, or certainly pop stars, are not going to be very impressed if I say to them, well, you're not going to the rest- restaurant tonight. It's too close to this place or that place, or we're not going there. We have to go this way. You can't stop here. No, that ain't good enough for most of them. So there's a massive difference straight away. And that's why I call it hobby guarding, because you really, in my opinion, if you're into this sort of thing, it's not about the money for me. It's about it's about the job satisfaction and stuff like that. And there is very little satisfaction out of, out of that celebrity bodyguarding for me. Um, I know some people might quite like it, but nah, it was a means to making some cash for me, mainly, like I say, because of those major difficulties in having clients that they want to tell you what to do. I'm the security bloke here. I'm the bloke that was in the regiment. I'm the bloke that's done this training, that training, the other training. And yet you, the singer, the la-la, you're telling me what to do. You're telling me to go here. And you're asking me to carry your bags. How can I be looking after you when I'm carrying your bags? All that sort of stuff. So those are your major differences. All right. It was great fun, some of it. All right. And I was told about this job satisfaction thing and a means to an end. There was... I did some great bands. I did Led Zeppelin on their comeback tour in the O2 Arena. I was with Jimmy Page on the stage, stood right behind him when he was strumming out rock and roll and the crowd was going mad in front of us. And he, again, I mean, he appreciated me being there. He'd been attacked on stage. He knew what the score was. He said, look, Phil, he said, I want you as close to me as possible at all times. But I still couldn't stand in front of him unless there was something actually going on and I had to remove him. I was kept out of the way. I was out of sight. But... Although I was just out of light, I was right where I could get on him. And he was a great guy. But that was that was a really good rock and roll show. That was Led Zeppelin. Imagine that, the comeback tour. Right at the O2 Arena, thousands of people. A cracking venue and a real good laugh for me. Um, who else did I do? Let's talk about it. Let's drop a few names into conversation with Big Phil. Who can he talk about? I've done a little bit with Liam Gallagher. Not much. He was a friend of mine. I used to look after Liam all the time. But sometimes he'd invite us along the stuff. We'd tip up just as extra hands and stuff like that, which was, which was a fair one. But he was he was quite a nice guy. He has this persona in the in the outside world of being the meanest, nastiest, hardest bloke going. Couldn't probably be further from the truth if you tried. Very nice, amicable guy. Couldn't do more for you. Listen to what he was told. All that sort of stuff. Really, really good. Who else have I looked after? Let me think. Kasabian, Kasabian. Now they were a band. They were a band, they were a good band, they were from Leicester. Have a look at Kasabian, Google Kasabian. Their music was on point as well, I'll tell you that now. Uh, but they were, they, were, they were good fun. Never had any incidents with Kasabian, but I remember one time again, this is one of the things that you dealt with a lot as a bodyguard, was overzealous fans. Everybody wants to touch them. Everybody wants to hold them. Everybody wants their T-shirt. Everybody wants their shoes. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants that. And sometimes just getting from A to B can be an absolute, nightmare you can be pushing and shoving and pulling and pushing and not making any headway whatsoever and i remember kasabian we did a tour of ibiza so ibiza with kasabian i mean at the time they were they were playing a gig called ibiza rocks which was a a rock event and had lots of different venues in these clubs and that's the other thing you know the clubs it was one with kasabian let's talk clubs because they all want to go to clubs after they've been singing and what have you. And, you know, that's fine. That's up to them. They're young people. They want to get it on in the club. But here's something that I wasn't used to. 
with a diplomat. Now, this is a really, this is a really tricky one. You might have a celebrity that says to me, Phil, who's the go-to drug dealer around here? I fancy a line of coke. Now, I don't touch drugs. I can't stand drugs. I can't abide drugs. And luckily, none of the people I've worked with have ever asked me to deal for them in that way. But I've seen evidence of it being taken on tour and that sort of stuff by so-called celebrities and things like that. And it was one of the things, actually, that I, I refused to take Amy Winehab to re- rehab because the amount of drugs and stuff that was being involved with her at the time, you could have any sort of nonsense with your own client. And then who looks like the buffoon? Who looks like the one who's unprofessional? Well, it's going to be the bodyguard, isn't it? Well, the bodyguard should have done that. The bodyguard should have done this. And it's not so. They are people that want to do this, that, and the other. And if they want to be throwing whatever they throw up their nose, up their nose, that's their business as far as I'm concerned. But it's not something I want to be involved in. And like I say, it's something you're going to have to bear in mind because if you look after some of the some of the bigger groups in the rock and roll fraternity, for sure, they're going to be doing the odd thing that you probably don't agree with. So that's another thing, another thing. We strayed away a little bit from, from the crowds, the crowds, the overzealous crowds. And the other thing with the overzealous crowds is like, if I had a diplomat in Kabul and I was trying to get him through a crowd, I really would start pushing people back, shouting, screaming, and all the rest of it. But these people have got an image. These are their fans. These are people that have paid possibly a lot of money to come and see them. They don't always swatted like a fly by a bodyguard. They don't want to be knocked into the dirt and trampled on by the whole entourage as it goes by. That's not what it's about. Some of these people are kids. So you have to be very careful with your approach and how you deal with things. And like, for instance, I'd say to my boss when I was in Kabul, they'll take the back door today, boss, there's less chance of there being some papers there and some press and some paparazzi and all that sort of stuff. You try telling Kasabian to go to back door to avoid the press. They want the press. That's what they're about. Hits, likes, shares, all that sort of stuff. That's what they want. And as a bodyguard, that's what you're going to have to deal with. You know, as a bodyguard to the stars, that is. That's all stuff that you're going to have to deal with, all stuff that you're going to have to manage. Hits, people trying to get on the stage. Like I say, it's just, it's nine times out of ten, it's overzealous. It's, uh, who do I look after? I went to Lebanon and I looked after someone there and I can't remember his name now, but he was from Lebanon. And the crowd got really, really excited and they were all throwing pillows. But it all got a bit much for him. And he wanted to come off the stage. And he, he did at one point come off the stage and I had to talk to him and say, look, it's only pillows, son. It's all right, we'll be there. And I ended up, a lot of them didn't want you there. But this guy actually ended up siding with me and going, oh, Phil, please look after me and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that was, that was a strange one. So, like I say, some of it's non-hostile behaviour, but it can be intimidating and it can scare them. I went to Glastonbury, which is a famous festival in the UK. And I looked after a guy called Dizzy Rascal, I've me- mentioned earlier. Very nice guy, a rapper, and a very good rapper. And he spent some time in Miami as well, so you might have come across him in the States. And I took him to the Glastonbury. And we were on stage, and he did, did his act and all that sort of stuff. We were there for a few days, and there was a VIP area. And we used to hang about in the VIP area afterwards. And this one time he says, Phil, he says, I wish I was a normal person. I says, what do you mean a normal person, Dizzy? What are you on about? He says, well, Phil, he goes, I'd love to, I'd love to go in the crowd. I'd love to go in the mosh pit. I'd love to go and see how it is from the other side, from the person looking up. He says, because I've been a star since a young person and I've never really been to a festival. I've never really seen what it's like to be in that crowd, to walk around with a beer in your hand and you know, all the stuff that you and I that, you know, frequent festivals, if you do, 
That's what you get from the festival, the enjoyment, the spectacle, the watching the band and all that sort of stuff. So I says, Dizzy, I says, do yourself a favour. I says, go out to your, your caravan out the back. I says, go and get yourself a large towel and put it over your head and then go and get two, two cans of lager, two cans of beer from the VIP area. So he turns up with his two cans of beer, a towel over his head and myself. So I joined him under the towel and we held the beer out in front of us and we left the area like we were just two drunks having a bit of a laugh under a towel. The sort of behaviour you see all day at festivals, people being stupid, doing stupid things. And I walked with Dizzy all the way into the centre of the crowd and it was rocking. And I can't remember what band was on now, but we were jumping up and down and dancing. We kept this towel on our heads and we were jumping up and down and dancing about and having a really good laugh and he was really enjoying it. We was out there, we did about three or four of their records and anyway, we jumped up and I remember I remember my beer getting knocked out of my hand. And I hadn't been drinking it anyway, but my beer got knocked out of my hand. And I dropped it and went to grab the towel. And somebody else grabbed the towel. He dropped his beer. Dizzy dropped his beer. Before he knew it, the towel had been ripped off. Now, that's not, um, nothing, nobody knew who was under the towel. So it was just, you know, people in the festival, here's a towel, pull it. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, this towel come off his head. And someone went, Dizzy Rascal. And someone else went, just... mate, I had to pick Dizzy up. I stuffed him on my shoulders and I ran with him like a pro football player or a rugby player on my shoulder, just bashing into people. And I had to get all the way through this crowd. I managed it just about. And we got back to the VIP area and they let us in. Um, <laughs> but wow, yeah, we just had to get out. And like I say, there was nobody in the crowd at all in any way, shape or form that would have wanted to hurt Dizzy. It's just that when you get this crowd mentality, you can cause a stampede. And when you cause a stampede, it can just go absolutely mad, straight off the bat type mad, like, you know what I mean? So, yeah, really, really scary stuff. Not that scary, though. I mean, it could have been worse. We could have been doing the same thing in Mogadishu with um, UN jackets on, couldn't we? So it's it's not that bad. And that was a conversation I had with Dizzy when we got back to the pen. I said, hey, come on. I said, you know, you wanted to go out there, son? And that's what we did. So we did do that. But like I say... The hobby guarding, as I call it, the bodyguarding, as they call it, it's different. It's, like I say, you don't have the same restraints. I do remember a team of lads actually hobby guarding a celebrity in London, and one of them tried to stop the, the principal, and I'm not going to say it was because I don't want to embarrass her, but one of them tried to stop the girl from getting out of the car because there was a group of lads there that was unsavoury character, and she wouldn't have got out and actually sacked the guy from trying to stop her and she did get in a bit of a rap with these guys, and they did say something, and it was a bit unpleasant, and she got spat at and all that sort of stuff. And even though, she said, oh, you shouldn't have stopped me from getting out of the car. Really? So that's what you're up against. So it's not, it's not a career path, I'd say, that people don't do. But for me, like I say, I'll only ever take a celebrity that I want to take. There's been plenty that I didn't want to take. I've been asked a few times, and like I say... One of my claims to fame, one of my big claims to fame is I, I refused to take Amy Winehouse to rehab. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> so there you go. There you go. A little bit on happy garden for you. I hope you that, that, that's given you a little bit of an insight into the differences of what the job entails. But the main thing is that the, the shoe is on their foot. They're the paying customer. There's no diplomatic protection. There's no privileges afforded you other than a VIP pass into areas backstage and that sort of stuff. So it's a very, very different world to what you might be used to if you're a steely-eyed operator, you know, working in one of the top-tier units around the globe, and now you find yourself stood next to somebody who plays a guitar for a living. <laughs> there you go. Right, okay.
Coolio, let's crack on. I have one last thing to talk about. This week in London, the plane disturbance. This week in London, or last week in London, should I say, a guy decides that he's going he's gonna to climb on top of a plane at London City Airport and cause all sorts of disruption. Uh, he glued his hand to the plane in the end, got all very scared, and I think the authorities got him off eventually. It was an absolute pain for everybody and all concerned. But disturbances on planes are not completely uncommon. And like I say... If it happens on the ground, that's one thing. The authorities will deal with it extremely swiftly, extremely quickly and extremely efficiently. They'll be on it, bang, and they'll want to quash it straight away. Once the thing's in the air, all right, it could be a different deal. So let's just talk and let's just think about, you know, the sorts of things that could happen once the plane takes off. And I'm going to tell you now, nine times out of ten, when an incident happens in the sky, from my experience... It will be down to too much alcohol. Okay, so drinking on planes. So there's a thought for you from straight away. Just ban drinking on planes and you'd probably lose you'd probably lose the majority of the trouble straight away. But they don't. So there is drinking on planes. The big concern obviously nowadays is the threat from terrorism. Okay? So as we all saw 9-11, you know, a horrible, disgusting day, you know, not just for American history, but for the history of this planet as a whole. A disgusting thing happened, okay? And we all witnessed it. But my attitude within my own flights now has completely changed from that. Now, even before that had happened, there'd always been a rumour that it could happen one day. There'd always been a thought at the back of your mind that, you know, somebody might try and bring a plane down one day. I mean, obviously, it went the way it did. So I used to always have a drink before I got on a plane, always. I very rarely do that now. I need to be in a position whereby I can see around me and whereby if it all goes wrong, I could be the one that actually steps up, starts to recover the situation. Now, I've seen a couple of incidents on planes, and like I say, in my experience, it's been drunken behaviour. But who's to say that one day you won't be in a plane and it'll get, you know, somebody will stand up with some real intention? Now, they have changed things like cockpits are more secure and all that sort of thing, but, you know... Whenever somebody comes up with a solution, somebody comes up with a counter solution, and I'm sure people have looked at other ways around this sort of stuff, so I try and get get myself in the frame of mind whereby I'm prepared. And if I'm prepared when I fly, then at least in the back of my own, my, my own mind, I'm a little bit safer. And like I say, I'm looking at what could potentially go wrong. Now, money dictates to me that I usually sit at the back end of the plane, so if I can't afford to sit at the front end of the plane, if you sat at the back, that gives you a better view down the plane as a whole. So if I had to pick my seats on a plane, I would pick them towards the back end of the plane where I can see what's going on in front of me. I can see anything that develops and I can keep an eye out. I'm certainly aware of my surroundings from the time I get on the plane to the end. As I walk through a plane, I always try and board last. And as I walk through the plane, I try and clock who's on there. I try and look for any potential troublemakers before I've even got to my seat. So I'm walking down a plane, I'm thinking, you've had a bit too much to drink. You'll probably fall asleep. You're not a bad guy. You look okay. Evening, no. All that sort of stuff, okay? So I'm weighing people up in my own mind. Now I know you can't guarantee where it's going to come from, but sometimes you just get that prickly feeling on the back of your neck or whatever that says, yeah, there's a wrong one on here. And if you don't do it at all, then you're never going to see that, are you? So if you just bundle on the plane with the rest of the punters or try and get on there first, you know, you're not going to notice what's going on. And this is the biggest thing I say to people, be aware of your surroundings, even before you get on that plane. 
behaviour within the within the last queue to get on it. Is there anybody? Is there anybody really nervous about getting on there? Is there anybody really sort of like panicking, flapping, itching, looking around, weighing people up, looking for security even? Now, I've boarded a few planes that have had security on them. And obviously, I'm looking for who's, who I think the security detail is. But they could be looking at me, looking at them, thinking, is he looking at me because he wants to know who I am, because he wants to take me on? So you've got all these permutations. But what I'm saying is, being aware of your surroundings, like I say, I always try and be the last person on the plane if I'm sat down the back and I walk the length of the plane having a look around. When I sit down, I'm alert. Now, obviously, you can't sort of like patrol around your whole life. You have to be realistic. But certainly, if I hear a disturbance, boom, headphones are straight off. I'm up having a look. What is going on? And then really, if you do ever get a disturbance on a plane, now, I can't teach you what to do or how to react. All I can say to you is, you know, you've got to utilise what is around you at the time to try and quell whatever activity is going on. But I can tell you now, for a fact, I'm not just going to stand there and let somebody pull my plane out of the sky. I'm not just going to let somebody start kicking down that cockpit door and not do anything about it whatsoever myself, okay? And as you know, there's various bits of equipment and stuff being brought around a plane all the time, trolleys and the like, you know, heavy pieces of equipment which you could potentially defend yourself with. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go right into the details of it now, but I remember, you know, years ago I did do a study on a British Airways plane to see how many things I could turn into lethal objects. And I'm telling you now, if I told you, you'd be shocked how many things I found on an empty plane. Let alone when you're talking people who've got handbags now, people who've got laptop cases, computer bags, this, that and the other. I've never been stopped getting on a plane with a carabiner on my bag, as I've never been stopped getting on a plane carrying a, a torch in my bag either. These sorts of things. Think about it. Think about what you know. Think about how you've learned your life. You know, I've always got a first aid kit in my bag. I've always got some trauma stuff in my bag. This is my EDC. I'm EDC thinking around carrying what I can can and can't carry on a plane. My EDC on a plane includes a tourniquet. It's not illegal. It can be carried. But if somebody does get gashed up on a plane, like you say, a bleed out can occur in very, very minutes few. Okay, so you need to be applying pressure, you know, and doing stuff that you've been taught at a very early hour, identifying who the doctors are on the plane and sorting stuff out. Because at 30,000 feet, there's not a plane on this planet. Unless it falls, can get to the ground in four minutes, you're dead before that plane hits the ground anyway. All right, so what I'm saying is work out what you can, what you can't carry, what's of use to you, what you can have in your hand luggage, what you can't have in your hand luggage, and what you really want and what the threat is likely to be. That's the way I'm thinking. Your awareness around your own travel should be at a height where you're taking on board what other people are doing around you all the time. All right, I can't stress it enough how important it is. Okay, not going to go massively into any more of this today. Like I say, SoftRep are developing their stuff. Let's say that. I'm not going to make any announcements, but you will see quite a bit more of me if you keep tuning into everything that's going on with SoftRep.com. And also, don't forget, you can get the Crate Club. You can do some really cool stuff with the stuff they've got nowadays, all right? It is all geared around your EDCs and stuff like that. It is all good tactical gear picked by operators for you. People who've got experience, people who know what they're doing, saying that's a decent bit of kit, let's get it here, let's get it at the right price, and let's get it out to the greater, wider people so that they've got decent stuff around them to help them in their everyday lives with their everyday carries. Okay, brilliant stuff. I will see you all again very soon. This is my last show for this month, but next month, believe you me, you're going to see quite a bit of me. So until then, until next time, who dares wins, and I'll see you all later on. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. 
New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio.